On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with the wonderful Padraig Otuma, poet, theologian, conflict resolution practitioner, and the host of Poetry Unbound. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Well, I'd say this is the definition of a hostile audience. (laughs) (laughs) And even so, uh, even so, that's a big joke. Uh, I'm really nervous because, I think I'm nervous because um, um, Padraig and I, uh, it's not that we've spent thousands of hours together, but we've spent, at this point, a good amount of time together in different Mm. places and very rich time, and we've had some wonderful conversations and... um, your book is so rich and beautiful, and I'm just very aware of how many how co- great conversations we could have, and that my line of questioning will, in some sense, fall fall very short and be inadequate. But it will it will be what it, it will be for today. This is a blaze of forgiveness, Chris. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm uh, all right. I'm repenting and before I even begin. Um, yeah, so we're so happy to be here at Corimila, uh, all of us from On Being, uh, and had such a beautiful couple of days in Belfast um, that have really, you know, really the reason we came is to interview you. So here we are. <laughs> um, and so, Padraig, I, I know that you will not be shocked by my first question. <laughs> um, uh, and I thought about uh, whether I could ask it in a very original way, and I just thought there's no point with mm. you. Um, so, so how would you begin to reflect on the religious or spiritual background of your life? I was thinking about this yesterday because I had a little inkling that you yeah. might be asking the question. <laughs> um, I mean, a very Irish Catholic background growing up in Cork. Um, Catholicism was part of everything, you know, prayers he said at night. We said the rosary in Irish at night as a family, um, in school, preparation for the sacraments. All of those things, they were just taken for granted. Um, When I was 11, there was a boy in the class who suddenly wasn't there anymore. And um, somebody said, I heard a rumor that he went to the Protestant school. And we were shocked. These, I mean, we weren't angels, but we were suddenly like, there has been one among us not telling us. And so there was just this sense that it was part of who you were in that sense. Uh, What it meant to be Catholic, what it meant to be Irish, all of those things were all ingrained together. I think for me, a a spiritual background for me is also um, language. I grew up with Irish and English. And uh, knowing two languages and knowing, I suppose, the language that came from the earth of this island has been very important for me also. And that, to my mind, over years has grown in its significance in terms of understanding that that isn't merely um, having another language, but actually it goes deep into the bones. Mm-hmm. It goes deep into the, to the essence of what I have found to be important. Right. I, I wanted to, to ask you about that. The love you have of words. Mm. Um, I think this the sentence, I love words, you know, recurs again and again. Um, paraphrased, um, but endlessly um, reiterated. Um, 
And it seems to me that this love of words, as much as any idea, is a thread between these two passions of your vocation uh, for the gospel and for conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so you think it? So you think that? I, I mean, I wanted to ask you about the roots of that, and and you think it is growing up with these two languages as I, much as anything else. Well, I think that's part of it. Yeah, um, for sure. Some of it too is reflecting on. I mean, it's like a north star for you, right? It is what the totally. words are doing. Yeah, totally, and simple words. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I love grammar and I love complicated words because they're fun. But I think the most important thing, things require the most plain words mm-hmm. and the most elemental words and the unadorned words so that you can get to the heart of things. And I think from the conflicts of my own life as well then as the conflicts that I've encountered mm-hmm. through the work of Karimila and working within those places, finding ways where you can be amongst people and be with yourself, where you can put words to something. I think that there is something um, sacred within the idea of putting words. Um, God is given words in the first chapter of Genesis Mm -hmm. and that that is somehow the writers of that considered that to be among the first things that God would be seen to be doing Mm -hmm. um, or heard to be doing, I suppose is a better way of saying that. And therefore, every possibility of a person putting words to something, especially something that's been difficult in itself is a sacrament. Mm. It is putting volume to something that perhaps you would much rather wish not put volume to, but it's happened and to find a way to say that. I remember um, six kids in my family um, and my parents, and we lived in the country, uh, although the village has expanded now, so it's not in the country anymore. Uh, And I remember sometimes waiting for those extraordinarily rare moments when I was the only one in the house, which is very rare, (laughs) uh, in order to be able to say things aloud to myself. And that, I I wouldn't have been able to Mm. say why that was important, but I knew it was important, vitally important. Mm. And somehow hearing yourself say words um, puts something into truth for me. Mm. I kind of assumed for a long time everybody was like that, but (laughs) I suppose not everybody is. No, well, and I think think that power of words, to put put words to something that you didn't even, that, that, that in some context, I think writing... In writing, this happens. I actually also think it happens in a conversation. It does, yeah. Sometimes we're able to put words around something we couldn't put words to before. And totally. the value just of that. But, but you, you've kind of carried that as, a, as you know, daily work. Uh, yeah. Hmm. I, I think words are the way to survive a life. Words are the way to put narrative onto something and to turn an experience, and especially, I suppose, thinking of conflict situations, to turn an experience that you would rather not have had into something where you can say, at least I've had the capacity to tell a story about it, even when that story is painful and unfinished and unresolved. Nonetheless, there is a way within which to have words for it. You're christening it, you're sacramentalizing it, you're putting something around it to say, this is the word for now. It's never the final word because the story is always unfolding. But I I think there's something about that that is so important. I read a thing years ago about um, being present to people who are going through grief. And one of the advice pieces was when somebody is going through grief, they will need to tell their story again and again and again and never tell them that they're telling their story too much. And that in itself is about language and mm-hmm. about narrative and about something that happens in hearing yourself, do you know? Right. Um, 
I remember being my best friend took his own life years ago, and uh, I, I mean, I was in the reverberations of shock for that for months. And I was opening up a bank account. This is in Australia, and um, the person behind the teller was saying to me, "Do you want to choose a pin number?" And I said, I "Chose a pin number." She goes, "No, I'm just checking. That's not your birthday or anything like that." You know, she was making sure that I wasn't doing anything obvious. And I was like, "No, it's the birthday of my best friend. He took his life yesterday." And I unfolded this story <laughs> to this poor bewildered woman behind yeah. the counter, and there was me absolutely in need of the public sacrament of telling a story to a stranger, to anybody, because mm. I was bereft. And that's what happens, I think. Mm. And those are the reasons why story is so important. Mm. Um, and all of us have moments in our life when we are desperate for somebody, even yourself, to hear the truth of that and, and putting it into your body because words are not just disembodied. Word comes, words come from the chest. Right. You hear it in your head. Right. You feel it. It becomes tangible. It totally mm -hmm. is. Yeah, words are not ethereal. Mm -hmm. Words come from the body from which the words come. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. in itself is a very tangible experience. And, and there is this, um, this reverence inside in, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Gospels, and in so many traditions of naming, yeah. the, the power of naming, totally, yeah. um, it's very much embedded in so much of our, so much of religious culture. And actually, the practice of that power is embedded in, in a lot of our profane disciplines like marketing. Right? Yeah. But, but we don't, we're not very reflective about it. And I do feel that that's something um, that you, you've really paid attention to. And there's, you talk about um, the story in the Gospel of Mark about, of the man beset by demons. Oh, yeah. Um, and you say that this story was a source of conversion for you. Totally. So I wonder if you would talk about that. Um, yeah. And he's asked by Jesus, what is your name? Yeah. And so, so tell the story, but also... Because you, you, you made that intriguing statement in your book. It was a source of conversion for me. But I, I really want to understand yeah. that conversion. So um, actually, this, that story of that man who was unnamed in the gospel text, it's in Mark chapter 5, is a story very dear to the heart of Karimela. And um, in the story, Jesus has crossed over the lake and there has been tumult on the lake. And Jesus has calmed that. And he arrives on the other side of the lake and a man is coming towards him. Um, and he goes, what do you want of me, son of the most high God? I adjure you in the name of God. Do not torment me. So here is this kind of image of somebody who is beyond themselves. And it's kind of portrayed in a demonic sense, actually invoking God to keep God away. So there's a lovely piece of that's that's as far as the Gospels get when it comes to humor, I suppose. <laughs> so there's an attempt at humor in that. Uh, and he is beyond himself. He, he And it says that he lives in the tombs and all night and all day he howls and he gashes himself with stones and even chains and fetters could not secure him because he broke the chains and broke the fetters. And it's an extraordinary story of somebody who was living way beyond who they are. But he is still living in a very diminished way, but he is alive. And uh, Jesus says to him, what is your name? And he says these extraordinary words, my name is Legion, for we are many. The singular into the plural. And he's using militaristic language too. And that was an area where the Roman army had gone. And so there are political elements to the way that Mark has written that in. 
and um, the demons beg Jesus not to be sent away. So Jesus sends them into the pigs, the poor pigs. And I wondered, is that also a little bit more humor? Is a Jewish joke kind of going, you know, they're filthy animals anyway, shouldn't be eating them. And then those pigs all rush into the sea yeah. and the um, swine herds go back to the village and then the villagers come. And it's extraordinary because it says they come and they see Jesus and the demoniac, the man who had had the demon in him, it corrects itself, and they are afraid. And it's an extraordinary thing that it doesn't say, do you know, they saw the chaos and they saw their livelihood or they saw, saw all the dead pigs or, and they were afraid. They see this happening, the man who had had the demon in him. And the thing is, is to go, was the man locked up because he was howling and chaotic? Or was he howling and chaotic because he was locked up? Mm. And suddenly it becomes a societal question. How is it that we create the demons that we then persecute? How is it that we create the situations where somebody's protest becomes the thing that justifies hating them? Mm. And there's a societal question within that. And the word begging occurs, I, I'm going to get it wrong now, but I think it's nine times throughout the Gospel, gospel of Mark. And eight of the nine times that Jesus has begged to do something, he acquiesces. Even the demons beg him, don't send us there, send us into the pigs. And Jesus acquiesces. Mm -hmm. And the one time out of all the times that begging is used in the Gospel of Mark is when the man says to him, take me back across the ocean or the, the lake. And Jesus says to him, uh, go home to your friends or your family or your kin. And he kind of go, for God's sake, like, don't give him a break. Uh, <laughs> And one of the things that the conversion for me was, so I um, loved language, loved religion, and was haunted by religion too, um, was turning to religion for comfort, for being a gay Irish man who loved the Gospels, yeah. and finding that to be a, a complicated place to turn to, because sometimes it hurt as much as it healed. And you were also someone who was seen as appropriate for exorcism. Yes, that's I mean, you true. Had, you yes. were seen I had my as own stories of exorcisms too. Yeah, yes. literal demons. Yeah, apparently. literally, they yeah. did have exorcisms. Totally. Yeah. So I had this whole story of where people had said because I was gay that I needed exorcisms, and I went through three, um, delightfully unsuccessful. I'm happy to report. <laughs> and um, uh, so I suppose I had a deep connection with that, and I really connected with this man's desire to go. Just take me away, mm. you know. And I suppose like I had gone to the other side of the world in an attempt also to be taken away. You know, I'd gone to Australia and lived there for four years, thinking perhaps I'd live there for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And um, then Jesus says to him, "Go home to your friends." And there is a way within which this man is told, "Don't let the terrible narrative be the thing that holds you." That there is the possibility that you can be the site of generosity from which you and also your own will benefit. You can be the place from which goodness and generosity can come. Mm -hmm. That the person who has held in their body the most hostility might be the possibility of the place of hospitality also. Mm -hmm. And that that is a story worth telling. Mm -hmm. And that that is a complicated thing. That's a painful thing. But I think certainly for me, when I read that and the theologian James Allison and then subsequently the Coromila community were the places within which I lived into the idea that actually you may find your home in the very place that you thought you'd have to leave. Mm -hmm. And that in itself has been the source of conversion for me yeah. and the exorcism that I had always wanted. It was an exorcism from fear and an exorcism from a narrative that itself would bind me with chains and fetters. And that was the exorcism. It wasn't the gay demons inside of me that needed to go, right. they're happily there, they're going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> but the, 
the problem was is the way that the story was being told right. was an extraordinarily annihilating and abominable narrative structure. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I needed to find the space within which the wide, wide world could say, you're all right. Yeah. And I think within that, it was a beginning to live into the possibility of saying, this might mean, this might be what it means to live without fear or to begin to live without fear or to live with a little bit less fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly all of those things are important. In Irish, there's a phrase that you say, um, you know, in English, you can say just in case or in, in England, people say belt and braces. You know, if you're just doubly preparing for something in case the possibility <laughs> right. of your trousers might fall down. But in Irish, you say eraglina which means for fear of fear. Mm. which shows that there is fear and then there is the fear of fear. And those things can be extraordinarily limiting. And the conversion from this anonymous man, I like to call him Max, from Mark chapter 5, for me has been the possibility of saying, let's begin to be gentle and soothe the fear of fear Mm. Mm. uh, and find a way that story can be its own liberation if you can find the way to hold it in a generous way. Mm. Yeah, I I feel like soothing. Well, we'll talk about that later. Okay. <laughs> I well, I mean, one thing you're just pointing at, which is also really a, a thread, is this notion of here, right? Go mm. home to your friends and family. Yeah. Um, and it it strikes me that you know there's a lot of uh, lovely and popular spiritual writing about the notion of here and be here now and. Um, I mean, the subtitle of your book is In the Shelter is Finding a Home in the World. Um, I feel like you, you, you turn this idea a little bit and complicate it in a way that is helpful and will be more familiar to many of us than the simple idea that being here now should be a simple, peaceful thing. Um, you you talk you mention your favorite poem by David Wagner called mm-hmm. Lost, and there are these two lines: "Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger." And it seems to me that from a young age, um, you you had a sense that there are many worlds within the worlds within the world, mm-hmm. um, and I, and I wonder I. I had that sense too, and I, I, I think, I think that partly comes from those of us who grew up in places um, that were more consciously and self-evidently contained, self-contained. Mm. And it's absolutely true, also, that a great metropolis is very self-contained, mm. but it doesn't know it. Mm. Whereas t- places on the edge of cities or small towns yeah. know it. Yeah. Um, and 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 um, self-contained ident- consciously self-contained identities, but then you talk about moving to Belfast in two thousand three, which and you had lived in many countries, right? Mm. You'd lived where'd you lived at that point? Uh, Australia, uh, Switzerland. I'd done some work in Uganda, and the Philippines and Lithuania as well. Yeah, <laughs> and you come back 
here. It's not exactly where you grew up in no. Ireland, but one might think, especially I think one on the outside, might think you had come home and yeah. this would be a, he- a familiar here yeah. where, which, where you would not, which you would not have to treat as a powerful stranger, no. but it almost seems like it was your lesson. Oh, totally. In this. I mean, I, like from a young age, I remember like I always wanted to travel. And when my parents told us when we were 11, we were going on a foreign holiday to North Wales. I didn't sleep for the whole night because I was so excited. And I, there was uh, <laughs> North Wales... Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> a slimy little caravan park. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was a, it was not a particularly exciting holiday. But I, I couldn't sleep, and I kept. I, 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 I said to myself over and over that night, I'm going on a foreign holiday. And then I would put the emphasis in a different place of the sentence. I am going on a foreign holiday, which showed a desire to travel and a love of language, too. I was so excited. I mean, I think the people of Wales have never had a more exciting, excited person <laughs> arriving on their shores. Right. I bought a little phrase book in Welsh just in case I met anybody. Um, and I couldn't pronounce it because it's an extraordinarily complicated language to make your way around unless you know the rules, which I didn't. Um, so all of that meant that when I traveled overseas and when I was in places where you're eating things that were new to you or experiencing cultures, it was, it was never a threat. It was always going, well, this is new, great, fantastic. And I was excited to, even if I didn't like something, to go, mm-hmm. well, here we are. Mm-hmm. So it was an and exciting stranger. <laughs> totally. And there is, I mean, yeah. and, and that shows an the limitation stranger, of right. this idea of difference and diversity when you're kind of doing it because it's exciting. Mm-hmm. There's something in that that you kind of go, well, it's always just a little visit then. And the complication for me was moving home to Ireland after those years away and suddenly being back in Ireland, being north of the border and realizing that some places that I went, people would say, oh, you're from Cork, we beat you in the hurling last week. And you're, you're just a local, just 250 miles down the road. But, you know, you're just local. Mm-hmm. And other people would say, oh, you're from Ireland. What's it like for you living in our country? Mm-hmm. And you're kind of going, I think I'm in my own country. I can read the etymology of the land, of this place names. I, I feel at home here. Yeah. Uh, and so suddenly this question of what is home was really complicated. And here, you, you hear that way when um, people are speaking here, because Northern Ireland or the North of Ireland, they, they can be loaded terms. Sometimes you hear people saying, oh, today's a great day in this part of Ireland. And other people say, today's a great day in this part of the United Kingdom. So here yeah. is actually a complicated compromise also to be able to say what is happening right here, right now, even if it's not what you'd choose. Yeah. And I think that is one of the things that for me, spirituality, as well as conflict resolution is about, because so much of things is saying, I wish things were different. I wish I were somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I wish this were not happening. Mm-hmm. And what David Wagoner says is the place where you are is called here and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. And powerful strangers might be benevolent, <laughs> but mm-hmm. only might. Mm-hmm. Powerful mm-hmm. strangers can also be unsettling and troubling and powerful strangers can have their own hostilities and have their own way within which they cause you to question who you are and where you're from. And that is a, a way within which, for me, the notion of saying hello to here requires a fairly robust capacity to tell the truth about what is really going on. And that can be very difficult. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to draw this out a little bit just because I, I know people will be listening from the United States and that, you know, this... This place, um, you talk about discovering all the many subtle, subtle and not so subtle ways people have to signal, you know, which here they are from and yeah. not from. Yeah. It, it kind of it's making me think of um, living in 
divided Berlin, yeah. divided Germany. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, where you had one people, one language, mm. one culture, one history. Um, that history had taken a couple of different forks. Totally, but yeah. how, uh, depending on which Germany you were in, um, the way you named the other side, mm. uh, and, the, and the way you named their country um, could you know, created all kinds of dynamics just with a single word. And Mm. I was very aware in East Germany, just to use the word Germany could be, like if I would say to people, I've been to Germany before, it could wound them deeply Mm. because it made them aware of their loss. Totally. And there's some, you know, there's there's something of that dynamic here. I mean, even how, when I listen a lot to BBC4 at home, it's so interesting to me how they'll, They'll they'll talk about the weather today, and you get the weather in England and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, and you don't get the weather in the rest of Ireland. And I've got to imagine that it's pretty much the same because it's not a huge place. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Anyway, just <laughs> um, uh, there. I what you're saying there in terms of that there is pain by saying it. It is so true to recognize oh, that yeah. because if somebody like. Inside this room here, we're in the Cree at Corrymeela, and this has been a place where thousands of people have come for dialogue. And I'm very conscious if any of us here who work here, live here, are part of the Corrymeela community, are welcoming somebody, and you say, you're all very welcome to Ireland. There's going to be some people here that will go, you've just put me in exile by that name because I have a deep British identity. Or if we say, here in the UK, we all do this, other people will go, well, you've just put me in exile. And so how is it that you find a language? And there is compromise involved in that language. Mm. But I think it's a compromise worth taking because the pain is too great to try to argue points of language. And that is where language is limited because language needs courtesy to guide it and an inclusion and a generosity that goes beyond precision and becomes something much more akin to sacrament, something much more akin to how is it you can be attentive to the implications of language for those in the room who may have suffered. The yeah, tr- it's, it's the it's the it's the dark side of the power of totally. language. Oh my it's, God! It's, right, how a single word, a name, oh, completely can wound and exclude. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I was in a comedy gig in Belfast a number of years ago, and there was a guy who wasn't from here doing a comedy gig, and he was brilliant. He was it was hilarious. One of the best comedy nights I've ever been to. Um, but at one point, he did this little riff as part of the comedy gig going, so the troubles, eh? The troubles. What a silly little word, the troubles. <laughs> and, he, and he just thought, right. have you any idea, 200 people in the room, yeah. how many people in the room would have been bereaved, would have been, maybe if their families had a narrative about move, being moved from their house or being intimidated in a particular area, from across all the different community perspectives that you would find here mm-hmm. to go, this isn't funny. Like, yeah. um, and no word is big enough. In Irish, troubles, tribloid can imply the bereavements. So that right. gives That's a deeper level to it. That's been helpful for me that you yeah. take that word apart a bit. Yeah. Um, right. It's, it, it is the word that's used in shorthand. It is, yeah. I, I think it can, I think probably to an outside ear, it can almost sound like a euphemism. Yeah. Or something really diminutive right. as well. But so. when you say it's a, it, it is it holds the no, the connotation of bereavement, yeah. it changes it. Totally. Like when you say na triploidy in Irish, you're talking about the bereavements. Mm-hmm. No. 
I'll call it whatever people wanted to call it because there's no word big enough for the hell that people live through. Mm -hmm. There's no word big enough for a way within which your life is interrupted uh, in a terrible way. Those who died, those who were injured, those who survived, the, mm -hmm. those who feel um, torn apart by that narrative. Like, no word is good enough. Uh, but also to have a have a little comedy idea to say, oh, that's a twee word. Yeah. You, go, uh, you need to think through who is it that's hearing this and what's that going to do? Mm -hmm. And that demonstrates um, the power of language as well as the limitation. The Sorry for Your Troubles book opens up with a kind of a, a reflection on the limitation of language because I yeah. felt very um, complicit, I suppose, in the sense of going, I need to be very careful yeah. in terms of that. And it's a short... Um, it's a short poem. It's yeah. called uh, The Word Became Stretched and Crept Among Us. It is the tense vocation of language to contain and constrain meaning. Some words are better than others. Alas sounds nothing like keening. Some words deepen another. To be troubled is to be found bereaving. It is the tense vocation of language to contain and constrain meaning. And that for me was um, really important that that was on page one mm -hmm. because I would have felt like I was um, doing something wrong if this didn't begin with a, an acknowledgement mm -hmm. of the ways within which language has failed us yeah. as well as helped to heal us. Mm -hmm. you, you and I were talking last night and I can't remember the details but about how um, I think also around this subject of the troubles but it's equally true in my country right now. Mm. Um, you know, a single word. There, there are so many charged words and phrases that if someone introduces into the room, it's going to set off this cascade of, um, of reactions. Yeah. And part of that reaction is, I know exactly what you're about. Mm. And um, sometimes, you know, I think sometimes... Uh, one of the most uh, powerful and helpful questions someone can ask in that kind of setting sounds so simple. You know, what do you mean? It's just like, what do you... So if we could, can step back from all the things that, that, that language awakens in us, what do you mean when you use that word? Yeah. And really be curious, really yeah. want to know. Totally. Uh, I, mean, you, I think we infuse words with a sense of who we are. And so therefore, you're not just saying a word, you're communicating something that feels like your soul, and it mm -hmm. might even be your soul. Mm -hmm. So the choice of a particular word is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And it's where I think the study of theology and literature has been very helpful because there is um, exegesis and hermeneutics. There is what the text there's what is in the text and whether that's a sacred text or the text of somebody's life. And then there is the lenses through which you read and interpret that. Yes. And those lenses I find to be extraordinarily practical. They're not just abstract theological notions or notions about reading literature. There is the way within which there is a generosity of listening. And when somebody says something to try to figure out did I hear them correctly? Because sometimes mm -hmm. I've heard what I want mm -hmm. to hear mm -hmm. and I might be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. And that can be healing. You know, one time somebody came up to me after I'd spoken and said, that thing you said really helped me. And I went, what thing? Because I was curious. And they quoted something. I hadn't said it at all. <laughs> right, yeah. uh, I was delighted yeah. to take credit for it. Yeah. <laughs> but and, I you, also, and you don't correct them because, no. they, because they, they heard something in totally. what you said that 
was yeah. right was their translation. Totally. They probably heard themselves. You're right. And I right. was just lucky enough to happen to be in the way. Yes. Wittering on about something, Irish yes. language or something. Yeah. And they happened to hear what it was mm -hmm. that their life has been leading them to need mm -hmm. to say. And I think mm -hmm. so sometimes it can be extraordinarily healing. Mm -hmm. It can be very harmful when it is that we have not listened well and go, well, when that person said that, and they might not have even have said that, they meant that. So there are at least two violations of language happening there. Yeah. And language has the capacity to communicate who we are. And so therefore, the interpersonal space and the encounter yeah. becomes really weakened. There's this language now in the States of trigger, trigger language, yeah. which really even the, the image itself is, yeah, is totally. violent. Yeah, it is. Uh, and the image itself, that if you, if you call something that's trigger, a trigger word or trigger language, you, you know, you, you've pretty much shut down the space where um, any kind of gentle curiosity can be possible. Sure, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I find myself in situations where sometimes I will say, just to let anybody know, you know, like for Cahill was my friend who took his own life. Do you know, I, I, I really appreciated if somebody said something about suicide in advance of a conversation in the few years after that. I thought it would just be a few months, but it was a few years really yeah. when I just thought I won't be able to cope with the ocean of everything that will happen here. Bec partly because I was living so far away and I, you know, I couldn't come to any even reconcil reconciling relationship with grief because I was living on the other side of the planet. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I can really respect and I've been the benefit of times when people have said that. But the complication is, is that life comes with no trigger warning. Things yeah. happen yeah. out of the blue. Something happens and suddenly with no preparation, you find yourself in the middle of something that you didn't wish to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why for me here is really important because that's the space for something when you are in a situation for which nothing has prepared you to have the language of here. It is not gentle. It's not even consoling. It just might be part of the truth. Mm -hmm. And that can be healing mm -hmm. to simply tell part of the truth. I mean, one thing you say out of all this experience you've had of being with people in, in charged situations, having um, difficult conversations, and you know, this is an important truth and it's really hard to take in, um, that most people do what seems reasonable to them at the time, most of the time. I mean, just that, that the people who may be so offending us and may seem frightening to us, are actually doing what seems reasonable to them. Yeah. And it's not always safe to decide to be curious about that. No. But, but I think there's a big place where, where it, it is safe. It's just going to be really uncomfortable. Totally. And I recognize that sometimes people will need to extend their generosity to me saying mm -hmm. he thinks he's doing what's reasonable to him at the time. Mm -hmm. Do you know? Right, and right. It, it works in both directions. It works in all those directions. Yes. And so it's a really important thing to do. I think, I mean, probably most of us learn most of our lessons for our wider public life from the private life. Yes. And I suppose for years and years, I worked in a really rich, faithful, loving Christian community environment where nobody had a clue that I was gay. And so when people don't know or think that they, that there is nobody around to hear the kind of things that they're saying, people say some pretty harsh things. But they loved me, I knew that. And I loved them also. Mm -hmm. And I suppose one of the things that being closeted for many years 
helped, actually. Not that this is good advice, but it is wisdom retrospectively. It helped me to understand some of the dynamics that were happening underneath the kind of public things people said in order right. to then think when it comes to having conversations about anything that divides us, that understanding in itself is a really wise thing. Understanding doesn't mean agreeing. Right. Uh, but I think sometimes when you ask a question in charged situations to try to understand a narrative that you might find intolerable, mm -hmm. people think, well, you're being complicit in that by giving that. And I think in, a, in situations like here where people have had so many experiences of terrible difficulty to understand might actually help us to heal. Yeah. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it that you right. agree. It doesn't mean agreeing. It doesn't mean nah. condoning. No. But when you said our words, they, they hold so much. They hold so much from us. <clears throat> they hold hope, our hopes and fears. Yeah. Do you remember years ago, I interviewed Richard Mao, a Christian theologian who... Um, what were you speaking? I always we forget the names, of, but I always remember um, the conversations. Well, we were speaking about gay marriage back oh, when, yes. yeah, back yeah. when that was a distant, remote yeah, yeah. possibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> maybe eight, hmm. nine years ago. Yeah, yeah. Which is amazing. It's very recent, really. In some and so yeah. he was somebody who, um, whose theology, whose reading of the Bible, leads him to believe that this is not something that sh the church should sanct uh, sanctify, and yet who understands that. Um, the measure of Christian fidelity is about much more than a mm. position you take on an issue. Yeah. And um, has tried to walk that, in, okay. live in that tension. But he, one of the things he said, and it, you know, you've kind of put a theoretical framework around that, is we have to stop engaging on this in terms of, by calling each other names. Yeah. And we have to start, we have to figure out if we can inquire and get curious and, and, and connect on a human level about you know, what are the hopes and fears we are bringing to this? Totally. But that's a question we hardly know how to ask once we've turned something into an issue. Yeah. And it becomes a very, very difficult question to curate in the public space. Oh, yeah. Because suddenly to ask it is to be complicit. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's why there are need for really robust private conversations about public matters. Mm -hmm. But there does need to be the stage then when we go, what can this mean for the wider civilization? How mm -hmm. is it that we can say, because ultimately that becomes a way of embedding fear. And I would like that public conversation can be a, a way within which we can talk about things um, with less fear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Good Friday Agreement from 1998, um, limited as all those treaties are, has been something that ushered in something quite extraordinary. And one of the things that you hear people speaking about regularly is to say that in perpetuity, the Good Friday Agreement... And um, this, is the, this was the... the peace the agreement peace, at the end, peace, yeah, to yes. bring the 30 years of uh, conflict and murder and separation to some kind of robust framework for moving forward into a better peace and a better living together. And the Good Friday Agreement guarantees that people born here can have access to passports British, Irish, either or both. And that that piece of language is a really important piece of language. And it, it introduces softness and more than just an either or option into mm -hmm. something that could have been tense. Mm -hmm. And I've heard people who find themselves to go, that is challenging, but it is also a guarantee. And I think that's a really important thing to recognize. And often our public discourse, whatever the issue that's dividing us, it needs a wise framing, it needs careful questioning, mm -hmm. and it needs a way within which we can speak about these things, recognizing that words have impact. Mm -hmm. 
And often if people use unwise words, they return to their intention. Well, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that right. without paying attention to impact. Right. Somewhere you said, um, the awful truth is that our mixed intentions sometimes have the unmixed impact of terror. Mm, totally. Mm -hmm. And I, we hear that at Carmela all the time. People who would say, I heard something on the radio where... Um, immigrants or yeah. Protestants or Muslims or whoever, British people, Irish people, whatever that gathering narrative is where somebody says something about that and actually it causes fear. It causes people maybe to close their doors, to feel a little bit more worried. And when you begin to feel that, you begin to look for it. And the awful thing is that you might find it then, even if it isn't there. Mm -hmm. And that can cause a real limitation in mm -hmm. a life. And that fails us <laughs> and that really does fail us so the question is is how is it that language simple language i don't mean complicated language that you need a, you know a, a dictionary to plow your way through i mean plain good wise language that can be the thing that might help us mm -hmm. so I, I mean i find a love of language to be really important when it comes to conflict resolution people say what was all your training i suppose i did do training in conflict conflict resolution but ultimately i think i come to conflict resolution as somebody who loves poetry because that has alerted me to the electricity of language and the dynamism of language as well as the dynamite of language and therefore being attentive to that when it occurs in the flesh, when people are saying it aloud and alive to each other, you can recognise here's what's happening, mm -hmm. hopefully. Do you, um, do you want to read any, any, a poem that um, along those lines? something come yeah. to mind there's one um so one of the complications of here is you know do you call it northern ireland or the north of ireland mm -hmm. and in a bid to irritate everybody i wrote a poem called the northern of ireland <laughs> and uh i'm just trying to think is there anything i suppose there especially in light of brexit recently there have been questions yeah. about um do you know will the fact that the uk has voted on, you know, in terms of the wider population, as you join all four together to leave the European Union, will that trigger conversations about a united Ireland? And that, you know, will Ireland be united? Will Ireland remain with two jurisdictions? Um, ultimately, I suppose for me, that becomes a very important but secondary question. The most important question for me is how we live with each other. Uh, because there'll always be somebody who finds it difficult and large groups of people who says, the arrangement of this jurisdiction is not to my liking. Yeah. And so therefore, the question is not to look to jurisdictional reconstitution or refortification in a way that will um, finally give us peace. Peace will happen with something else in the way that we turn towards each other. So here's the poem, The Northern of Ireland. It is both a dignity and a difficulty to live between these names perceiving politics in the syntax of the state. And at the end of the day, the reality is that whether we change or whether we stay the same, these questions will remain. Who are we to be with one another? And how are we to be with one another? And what to do with all those memories of all those funerals? And what about those present whose past was blasted far beyond their future? I wake, you wake, she wakes, he wakes, they wake, we wake and take this troubled beauty forward.
Hmm. There's another one that happened. If I would don't mind, yeah, the, yeah, sure. This is just a short one. Um, it's called. It's, there's three parts of it. I'll just read the the shortest, the third part. The poem is called "The Pedagogy of Conflict," and it was a, as a result of a conversation that happened here when we had people from a variety of places where there were borders, and some people loved those borders. Some people had, uh, in their family, been bereaved by those border wars, Israeli and Palestinian people, people from across the jurisdictions and religious and political identities of Ireland. Um, some people had taken lives in the room and there was a conversation broke out about if the term legitimate target was good, because somebody said, well, I never murdered anybody. I just took the lives of legitimate targets. And that suddenly there is a poetics about the choice of language there. But you recognize that this is a poetics that's you know, the Greek word for power is um, dunamos, which means both dynamic into English and also dynamite. And you recognize that mm. here is the destructive way within which power can be there. Okay. And somebody in the room said, well, I suppose that made me a legitimate target then when your organization shot at me and missed. And like, there's nothing theoretical about that kind of language. Mm -hmm. Like if anybody had been tired, they weren't tired anymore. They're fully awake to that. And I was in the room as poet in residence. Somebody else is facilitating, thank God. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and so um, here's a poem, uh, a, a part of a poem about that. The, the larger poem is called The Pedagogy of Conflict. When I was a child, I learned to count to five. One, two, three, four, five. But these days I've been counting lives. So I count one life, one life, one life, one life one life because each time is the first time that that life has been taken legitimate target has 16 letters and one long abominable space between two dehumanizing words hmm. um i want to i want to keep going on this work of um of, of this wisdom you have, and actually this wisdom this place has um, about understanding who we are to each other and how we are to each other. Mm. Um, because as I've said a couple of times in these days that we've been in Northern Ireland, um, it's very striking to me that we're in a place that has in living memory moved away from sectarianism um, while at this particular moment in history, in these early years of the 21st century, many places, including my country, feel like they are gravitating towards sectarianism. Mm. Um, but I, I, I want to talk about um, the fact that you're gay. And, um, really? Yes. <laughs> um, and how... Uh, Here's the thing, Padraig, that really strikes me. Reading you and reading about the, the work you've done around this and also just how you've inhabited this part of your identity in the work you do, whether it's the focus or not. And it, I think it rarely is the focus. Um, you, are in, you're, you are in an interesting position because this is culturally a time when there have been these huge, transformative, revolutionary shifts. Mm. I mean, 
I mean, Ireland voting yes, to... I know. Yeah. I wept for a day. You wept yeah. for a day. The Republic of Ireland <laughs> voting to legalize same-sex marriage. But I think mm. this Catholic country, I mean, mm. before it happened in the United States, I yeah. believe. But, but even so, as I'm saying, you know, in the history of this show, even just, you know, we had a show on uh, um, the future of marriage, mm. and it was about... Um, it was about gay ma- Well, we were trying to shift the, f- yeah. you know, say, well, okay, we're talk- we always talk about gay marriage, but we talk about the gay part and not the marriage part. Mm. So let's talk about marriage. Yeah. But even this was maybe three or four years ago, yeah. and it still wasn't at all clear that this was, this was inevitable. This mm. was going to happen. So, so change has happened very quickly. And yet, because of who you are and, and where, where you're here is from year to year, you are right in the thick of, this the the spectrum of how this this mm. encounter this awakening yeah um this awakening in fact to the reality that there have always been different sexual orientations and realities mm. but but um this you know folding that into our identity mm. so you you've you've been in places like Uganda where you are in fact talking about these things about sexual identity and how churches respond to that, mm. where you have very actively stayed in the closet. Mm. Um, in fact, felt that you would be, un- I were pretty sure you would be unsafe. Yeah, yeah, it was more than just feeling, it was just right. the truth. <laughs> you were, right, right. So you would, yeah. so, and you have willingly, but, but you didn't, and, and you know, you talked about this Christian community that you were part of mm. for many years where you felt deeply loved mm. and you um, was that also oh there was it was a Christian community that exorc- was that the same one that also tried yeah. Un- yeah. made you undergo exorcisms yeah totally um, and the reparative therapy too and I, I mean that mm-hmm. is an important part of my story that mm-hmm. for a year I went weekly to reparative therapy mm-hmm. or th- change therapy or some way within which somebody who'd done a weekend course somewhere thought that they could call themselves a counsellor now and I was 19 and frightened and yeah. thought this might help and I was told this is the kind of thing that will help and what, what I mean, this is a slight precursor but language was the thing that saved me because I remember at one point plucking up the courage to say to this therapist or whatever he was being called professionally um, I'm not even sure I want to want to have sex with a woman because he was it was all yeah. it was so erotically focused in the sense of the, the kind of the mechanics of what success right. would look like right, right. and that was the awful thing and I was trying to put that into language and he said that's because you're saying really poor sentences and he goes what you should be and little did he know the Egypt but he <laughs> um, he said you shouldn't be saying have sex with a woman you should say I want to give sex to a woman and I remember thinking, that is a terrible sentence. Yeah. Like, in terms of a conjugation of a verb into a sentence, that, that fails. So, and I had been through three exorcisms in the year previous to that and had gone to this. I used to get the number 16 bus from the north side to the south side of Dublin, petrified and leave burdened, like with a damp blanket of dismay on me. And, and I said to him, that's not a good sentence. I never went back. And that was the exorcism. It was amazing. And I remember getting back on the yeah. number 16 bus, elated with delight. And I had no one to tell because to tell anybody mm-hmm. about this exorcism into freedom mm-hmm. would have been to have caused complication in terms yeah. of that. And so I, I'm really, it's, it's important to recognize, I think, when it comes to LGBT people's identities, causation, cure and consequence are some of the public fixations mm-hmm. around people who are 
cautious about um, the inclusion or the, the pace right. of change. Uh, but I, don't, I, am, I am bored often by ways within which um, it can turn into something where, where I have received insult, where I then give insult back. I have never had a situation where that's been fruitful. Uh, much mm-hmm. and all as it might feel lovely for me afterwards or somewhat vindicating, mm-hmm. it isn't fruitful. It doesn't mm-hmm. help to bring about mm-hmm. change. And what can help is when somebody can, when people can come together. So I suppose I've been really interested in curating spaces of dialogue um, here in Ireland, in Scotland, in the States, in Australia, in England, uh, as well as in Uganda, where people who believe very deeply that they that their faith and their social conscience causes them to be concerned that there is the possibility within the gospels for us to be brought into a deeper kind of belonging with each other mm-hmm. and that we can turn towards each other and have human encounter where we didn't expect to do it and that human encounter is not merely the soft pillow around the harshness of the text but actually human encounter helps to go deep into the text mm-hmm. and that change is the possibility of a deeper faithfulness rather than being the abandoning of faithfulness. And in Uganda, I mean, I, the, the Ugandan parliament had proposed the death penalty for LGBT people and had been put forward. And was, I wrote to a friend who um, was the leader of a large Christian funding agency that gave a lot of money to Uganda and we're old friends so I could speak my mind and I said mm-hmm. unless you're doing something you've got blood in your hands and um, he took me seriously and um, he said let's have a conversation and I just finished doing a master's on the encounters between Jesus and the marginalised in the gospels of, in the gospel of Mark mm-hmm. and I th- the marginalised in the gospel of Mark maybe across all the gospels but really a, a, in such a beautiful way in Mark they are the site of faithfulness. They're not just the site of tolerance or, or let them in, you know, or that kind of stuff of give them a bit of the table. Right. Actually, they are the site of what it means to turn towards Jesus of Nazareth and to get it in the moment. They're amazing. Like the man that we were talking about, uh, Max, the man from the Gerasenes. Yeah. And then right after him, there's the woman who pushes her way through the crowd. And she's amazing. And these people are not we'll tell the exceptions. Story. So there's a, Jesus is on his way. Um, uh, the president of the synagogue, Jairus, his daughter, is 12 years old and she's dying. And he has thrown himself at the feet of Jesus. And as he's on his way, a huge crowd, crowd surrounded. And there's this woman there and she's pushed away through the crowd. And it, it goes into great detail about her malady mm-hmm. that um, for she had, she had uh, bleeding and that it had gone on for 12 years also. There's a lovely literary link mm-hmm. between these two women. And uh, it says that she had spent all the money she had on doctors and had not gotten better. In fact, she'd gotten worse. So there's a mild level of implication of corruption to people benefiting yeah. from the illness yeah. of others. There she pushes her way through and nobody knows about her, not even Jesus, just the reader and her. And it says she felt in her body that she was cured of her disease. And there's poetry in that in English. And in Greek, there's the repetition of the letter pi over and over within that. So even in Greek, it's written with a beautiful poetic in that. And so there she is. And then Jesus turns around and goes, who touched me? Do you know, mm-hmm. nobody says anything. And probably the disciples are like, uh, everybody. Because, <laughs> you know, we're here in a crowd. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're frightened too to go, what's this language about touching? Let's not talk about touching. We'd much rather we don't. Do you know? <laughs> and so then she comes and she falls at his feet. And it says she told him the whole truth. 
And the whole truth was not just the truth of formality. It was also the truth of the societal reading of formality into which everybody had been complicit. Mm. And that's the extraordinary thing about her. So in Uganda, we looked at this text and text of the woman in Luke chapter seven, who makes her way into the house of Simon the Pharisee. And she was um, not welcome, but she actually did the duties of the host. And it's amazing because Jesus would have been lounging on the floor. And then in Greek, it says he turned to her and spoke to Simon, who would have been the host. So his head was now to the host, turning to this woman. And he says to Simon, do you see this woman? And it's like, that is an amazing question of hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. Do you see, or do you see her, or do you see what you see? And what do you see? And these are the ways within which the gospel text calls us to look around us in an amazing way. I was reading about Hagar this morning, and I love that Hagar's in this terrible situation where she's been sent out into the desert she's to die. The, she, the, was, I suppose she was a high-ranking, I suppose she was like the chief of staff. Um, some people call her the servant of Abraham, but I mean, right. she was the daughter of Pharaoh. Like she was a very high-ranking. She was the CJ of, um, of uh, Abraham, <laughs> for those who like the West Wing. Like she was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> And Abraham went on to marry her later on, which is often forgotten. But so she is in the desert, supposedly to be there so that she can die, I suppose, out of thirst yeah. with her son, Ishmael. And then it says that well, she gave she, God a name. And she has Abraham's, she gets yeah, pregnant Abraham's by Abraham. Son. Yeah, and yeah. they send her away. They sent her away. Yeah. yeah. And there she is in the desert. And it says she gave God a name, the God who sees Mm. And so therefore she becomes the theologian of exile. Mm. She is somebody in that situation endowed with the possibility of language. Mm. And I think this is the way within the which the text transforms us. And my interest in working with people who have views about lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and intersex people that I find to be harmful is to say gentleness and kindness and encounter can have the possibility of bringing us towards each other. And how is it we can help? And how is it that our encounter with each other can change? And once in one of these encounters, there was an amazing situation where about nine or 10 of us in a room, people who had chosen to come, and they came from fairly, um, with deep caution about lesbian, gay, bisexual, mm -hmm. trans people. And where was this? This is in Belfast. In Belfast, yeah. Uh, and at the end of the two-day encounter, one of the men who had, he had chosen the word fundamentalist for himself to describe himself as a Christian. Um, he said, I have a question for all the homosexuals in the room. Part of me wanted to go, oh, we don't really like that word. But anyway, <laughs> I thought, let's hear the question first. Because, you know, uh, and he says, I want to know how many times since we've met together in the last while have my words bruised you? And um, somebody next to me went, ah, you're lovely. You're very nice. You know? And he said, no. Don't patronize me. How many times have my words bruised you? And the fella next to me started to count one, two, three, four. And then he goes, I've given up after the first hour. And then this man who had gone to the edges of his own understanding and asked others to help populate that edge with information mm -hmm. and insight said, are you telling me that it's painful for you to be around me? And somebody went, a woman in the room went, yeah, it is. And he was the one who chaplained himself into that space. And I couldn't have made that happen right. as the facilitator of the room. I could, like if I had said, do you realize that your words are bruising? You know, yeah. none of that would have been sufficient yeah. because what he was being brought into was the transformative power of human encounter mm -hmm. in relationship. We were on a residential and curiously he had asked, um, we were talking a few nights previously about um, 
television and he was saying that his absolute favourite show was this political show on the BBC uh, on a Thursday night and I said oh, my partner produces that and he was like what? and then he went, he went through all the names because he's that kind of a geek that he knew right, all the names all the of the name, production right, team right, right. and he mentioned him by name mentioned Paul by name mm-hmm. and then suddenly he was like do they enjoy it? And he had all this information that he wanted to ask mm-hmm. and curiosity unfolded mm-hmm. between us. Mm-hmm. And I think that and shared cups of tea was one of the things that contributed mm-hmm. to the fact that he demonstrated and I was converted by his capacity to ask that question. Mm-hmm. I, I came away just going, I want in the ways in which I am the perpetrator of real hostility and lack of understanding and uh, lazy thinking, I want to be someone like him who says, Tell me what it's like to hear the way I talk, because mm-hmm. I need to be changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he transformed me in that situation. And in Uganda, too, I mean, I mean, I didn't, I, I, I suppose I, I changed the way I spelled my name. I was, um, uh, I wasn't saying that I was gay. I suppose I was going back inside a, a temporary closet because I thought some of the ways in which language about to say, oh, you know, it's just violations of human rights in situations of countries that have been um, the subject of colonization human rights legislation can seem like erstwhile colonizers coming in and saying we know that we weren't necessarily the best people around you but we'll just tell you what's right now and that <laughs> uh, that i'm not saying that that is what a human rights yeah. approach is but that is how it can be felt yeah. to be yeah. and so i was thinking well what is the narrative that is loved and is there space in the narrative that is normative for to give a language for a deeper faithfulness, for a broader inclusion. And the language that was loved and the narrative that was loved is the Gospels. So go, well, let's share this love of the Gospels and see if the Mm. Gospels can be the things that transform us towards each other. And I I think that's a really important piece of information in terms of thinking about the role of religion in our wider society. And what was really helpful is that within that, I went also to be converted in terms of that. But, you know, um, I think that also speaks to um, another, another idea that, that, that you and I have discussed and explored together and that's come up in these days in Northern Ireland, which is the urgency of creating spaces where that kind of uh, human connection can be made. Mm. Even just that normalizing thing of, oh, I know the TV show that your partner works on. Mm. which wasn't about the issue, but no, it flowed no, into totally. the relationship. Yeah. But also where you could come to that moment of conversion for both of you. I mean, that that simply wouldn't be possible in the context of um, most of what we call public life. No, it's Or not. media um, projects, sure. however well-meaning. Yeah. Um, I mean, Corimila is a place, right? It's the mm. creation of a place where yeah. people literally... People whose lives were threatened during the Troubles literally fled here, here physically to be safe. Mm, yeah. But I think also the vision of, of creating a place where a different kind of... Totally. Where something new becomes possible, mm. this hard and, one. So Carmen is 50 years old, and for so many of those 50 years, we've been cautious and shy by choice about being too public about it, the kind of things that come here, because stories don't come to be broadcast. In as much as we do want right. to be able to curate public stories to say that these are for the wider good, but also not every story is safe to be put out and not every person wants their story to be turned into that. Mm-hmm. And so here has been the place where over cups of tea and over the experience of temporary community and over the experience of bringing people together to say, let's find some ways to talk with each other and be in the same room with the people we talk about 
and have the opportunity to mm. say the things you say about them mm. to them and hear that reciprocally. Mm-hmm. That is a really important process yeah. and it needs safety and curation and also right, the sense right. of Right, because saying, to say the things we say about them to them, it's still, you want to be able to create that honesty, but but you have to create that space, Totally, right? yeah. yeah and safety. Curation. And so, yeah. I mean, sometimes yeah. we, we would be working with groups of people for months in advance mm-hmm. before they'd come in with each mm-hmm. other. And then other times it just happens. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. um, coincidences happen and people are face to face. And uh, there's all kinds of human encounters that happen that can have the possibility of helping us if we can not be as afraid of fear. And because be fear, afraid of fear, yeah, because right. fear will be there, and that's it's. I mean, it's good to be frightened, especially in a place that has known such pain and conflict mm-hmm, as here. Mm-hmm. Fear is real, mm-hmm. but when you're frightened of fear, I think you don't begin to address the fear. You begin to perhaps build walls to protect yourself from something that's actually really calling for your attention, and might even have the possibility of wisdom speaking to you from that. Um, I think what you're talking about is so relevant and resonant for American life right now. And one thing I experience is that people long to begin. They want to be having those kinds of encounters mm. in their communities, like where they live, yeah. very close to home. And they don't know how to start. Mm. Um, and this question of getting the right people in the room. Mm. you know, It's one thing to call together a group of people who have this same longing you do. Sure. Um, but it too often it turns out that you know you have the choir in the room, sure, and yeah. you and people don't really know how to invite or mm-hmm. how to craft a, a compelling invitation. Totally. Um, what's your? How would you start to um, give some counsel on that from sure. what you know? Carmela's practice for all those years has been a, to be a place of story and a place where people speak the truth of their life through the truth of their story or part of the truth of their story and that within that the society, the religion, the politics, the pain are all held within those stories. They don't exist mm-hmm. in an abstract way. Mm-hmm. These concepts like civic society exist in people, next to people, next to people, next to people. And sometimes that's a very fractious experience. And one of the things that I think is really important for lots of organizations of goodwill, and Carmilla is one of them amongst many in Northern Ireland, it's a really important thing to say, um, is the recognition to say, um, where are the limitations of our understanding? Do we have friendships? I've got a few friends that when something happens in the news regarding um, unionist or loyalist identity in Northern Ireland. Uh, So people for whom being British and that this being British jurisdiction is really important. I'll go to them and I'll say, can you help me? Because that's Mm -hmm. not the perspective I come from. And I'm not looking to be converted to Mm -hmm. to, to Mm -hmm. sharing that same perspective, but I am looking to be converted to something. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that is. And I really appreciate when people contact. So the question often is, is to say, are there human connection points where quietly you can say to people, can you help me understand this? And maybe then you'll participate in this fantastic argument of being alive in such a dynamic way that it's great fun or really enlivening. And you can have a really robust disagreement. And that is the opposite of being frightened of fear Mm -hmm. because you can create that. We had a situation inside here, the travel 
travelling community in Ireland are, I mean, sometimes people look at the travelling community and say, oh, they're gypsies. But the travelling community in Ireland, and Lucht Schul is the name in Irish, the walking people, uh, an indigenous group of people in Ireland who have been nomadic. Mm -hmm. And uh, in comparison to all the other groups of people who experience discrimination in Ireland, north and south, the travelling community are the ones who experience the most. And we had an encounter here, when was it? Um, September, I think, wasn't it? October. And I invited some people to say, will you be with us for the weekend? Be, uh, because many people want to hear the story. Uh, not for any defensive. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need to come to defend anything if, if you would be so good to come and share. And they've experienced, they experience so much um, bias and totally. dismissal. Totally, and, yeah. And Down to wariness. the question. To, yeah, totally being suspected. Like somebody... Um, told a story once about saying that she was at her mother's funeral. This is in a different context where I heard a woman from the travelling community speak and she goes, so at my mother, my, I was at my mother's funeral and she goes, so of course the police were there. They say it's for protection, but you know they were just there anyway. And she goes, right. what funeral needs the police? Right. And he just thought, oh my goodness, the, mm. at a funeral to preemptively be seen as potentially hostile, yeah. just, I mean, that's a situation where there's a societal context where anything that happens... Well, I am thinking of lots of funerals in the United States mm. right now. Totally. Policemen and and people who've been shot by totally. policemen or others. Yeah, and, and th mm -hmm. those are ways in which the single story is telling many stories all at once. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is to recognize, is there any way that we have someone who could be a friend to us mm -hmm. um, and to say, to share their story? And that hospitality has to be part of the meeting of that. Mm. And mm. to say, come be among us, share the story, and to listen also where people might go, what's it going to be like to share, to share that, you know? And actually, we had another situation where somebody else came to share their story. And over the coffee break, I tried to ask a question and it was so clumsy. And I'm somebody who likes language. Mm -hmm. I was so clumsy and I had been part of issuing the invitation. And I had thought I was saying, help me here. I'd love to know a bit more. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, I don't even remember what I said. I remember the look on their face and then me just thinking, oh my God, this is mm -hmm. difficult and painful. Mm -hmm. When Corrie Miller began in 65, somebody who didn't have a great understanding of Irish, old Irish etymology had said, oh, Corrie Miller means hill of harmony. And people were like, how lovely, amazing <laughs> hill of harmony. Isn't that delightful? Um, about 10 years later, somebody who actually knew what they were talking about when it came to old Irish etymology said, well, it's kind of like place of lumpy crossings <laughs> <laughs> and by that stage there have been 10 years right. of all kinds people are like oh thank god <laughs> the place can hold us so because yeah. we haven't been great at harmony apart from the occasional yeah, song well, who is yeah uh, <laughs> but it, that gives yeah. and people do sometimes say when we're in community discussions mm. say this is a bit of a lumpy crossing for us mm. and it gives space and permission to say mm. yeah it is and actually that's even the naming of that is part of what might help us and be mm -hmm. a, a lovely, wise understanding of what success is. Because mm -hmm. that in itself is a really good place to get to, mm. to say the here is that this is difficult. Yeah. And then to hold that together in a wise way. And that can be really helpful for all involved. It's slow and it involves steps that feel like compromises as we move our way toward each other in terms of understanding. But I don't know any other way. Mm -hmm. yeah. I want to name something that you call out that, um, uh, and that you've experienced this as a, um, 
Let me find this. Oh, Padraig, there's so much I want to talk about we're not going to get to. Um, uh, this, this, this irony, um, I'm aware of very much in the States right now, well, in the States altogether, that people who, who are most in pain and have been most hurt and whose very existence is on the front lines of whatever the conflict is, so around race, right, for example, that we expect, uh, for example, African-American citizens to show us the way forward mm. out of the trauma we together created. Um, that the most vulnerable, the people who are, whose identities are threatened mm. Uh, by whatever the conflict is, end up being on the front lines of that conflict. Yeah. And that feels so wrong, and yet it, it seems inevitable. I mean, you, you name that a lot. Yeah. I suppose I name it from my own narrative, because I, I don't know that I have any position to say how other people in situations where their story needs to be brought forward should or shouldn't be mm. the curators of that. What I do know, and this has been painful, but what I do know is that when lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, intersex people speak about our own lives, that there can be the possibility of priesting something for the wider society. And that yeah. you ask most of the people who have the least to give. Right. These people, are the burden of survival often demands the most from, from those whose survival is hardest. Yeah. And I suppose that just seems, I don't like that at all. No. <laughs> I, I think that's horrible. I haven't seen any other way. And I think there, I, you know, I, I wanted to be a priest. Uh, and actually, I love the sacraments. and I love the concept of sacraments. Uh, and when Benedict became Pope and that in 2005 and that edict was issued, you know, I, the bishop came and said, uh, no more. <laughs> I swore at him and then we finished a bottle of wine. So we're still good friends. <laughs> <laughs> I might have finished most of the bottle of wine. Uh, and... Uh, I, um, I've come to see in years since that for me, the way that I understand the vocation to priesthood is as verb, that priest is verb, mm -hmm. to find ways where confession, breaking bread, the blessing of love between people, even those ways in which people come together for a temporary community, that is something akin to what we understand as the bond of love between people. People come here, that those are priestly functions mm -hmm. and that the duty of priesthood falls upon all within that context. And I have recognized that in Karimila, we have been converted over and over again by recognizing our complicity in the structures that have already failed us. And we as Corimila members have been participating and fully complicit in those situations. And that actually we have been converted by the people who have been brave and good enough, not because we deserve it, because we don't, mm -hmm. but to go, allow me to share something. And that, I think, is a really important understanding about how confession mm -hmm. is a really vital part and one of the things that I, if I'm asking somebody if they'll share their story, and I recognize I'm being part of this problem in that situation, but I don't know another way. I mean, you read and all those kinds of things, of course, but also you want to encounter the human story. And one of the things I hope to say is that um, 
because it can be arrogant to say, and suddenly we will be your advocates because who knows right. if we will. We might continue to be part of the problem, right. but maybe we'll begin to have some language to begin to confess. And I think that is one of the role of allies and advocates is to begin to confess. And this idea of confession, I mean, the Catholic Church has moved away from calling confession to reconciliation. And actually, I think confession is a pretty good word mm -hmm. about some of the ways in which our society is breaking itself. Mm -hmm. And I've been the victim of that in a small way, actually, when I compare it to mm -hmm. all the stories I know. Mm -hmm. But I'm so privileged and I need to be looking, not just waiting, looking for the opportunities where we as Karamila can be confessing mm -hmm. to our complicity as people who have benefited from systems that have underprivileged others. Right. So, so I suppose that's the wisdom that I have, but I'm very tentative about it, Krista, because I, 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 from the small way that I've experienced it, it's been hard but important. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure I could ever dictate that for anybody else. I think Mary Oliver has this poem, Somebody I Love Once Gave Me a Box Full of Darkness. It took me years to realise that this too was a gift. Mm -hmm. And that rings so true for me. I, and the, the, the poem is called The Uses of Sorrow in the book Thirst, just after yeah. uh, Molly had died. And I, that is so true, but you can never say to somebody else, oh, this will be a gift for you in the no, future. No. Do you, know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you might yeah. be limping away from that yeah. conversation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, for people who've been through it, you go, yeah, you can... You can curate that for yourself, but mm -hmm. you can never impose it on somebody else. Mm -hmm. So, And when people wish the dignity of privacy, that is really to be employed. There's a lovely story in Luke's Gospel where um, uh, the poor man Lazarus and the rich man, he's not given a name, but people call him Dives or Dives. You know, one, they both die and one goes to Hades and is burning and the other goes to the bosom of Abraham. And the fellow in Hades, who's the rich man, keeps on saying, Abraham, um, send Lazarus with some drops of water because, you know, my, my tongue is parched. And, <laughs> and then he goes, well, uh, Abraham goes, no. And then he goes, well, send him to my brothers then. And there he is in this kind of exaggerated parable, burning in Hades, still dictating what right. to do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, there, there's a little bit of pantomime in the whole thing, which is a great yeah. laugh. But one of the interesting things is that um, Lazarus is the burden of self-defense is not put on Lazarus. The bosom of Abraham. Abraham says, no. Right. And Abraham is the one. Right. And I, I don't read that as Lazarus's voice being taken away. No. I take it that part of what we understand to be beatitude is that we can move beyond the kind of god-awful situation that I'm talking about there where people yeah. have to be their own defenders. I right, hope we don't. Right. I would love to find a better way. And the word, the, the, well, the word ally, I think yeah. feels important. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I kind of wish we could talk about that for an hour. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to go over, which I never do. I'm very disciplined with time, but maybe 15 more minutes, if that's okay, for this hostile audience. <laughs> Um, let me just look at this. Okay. Um, oh, let me do this. I didn't write this. I didn't type this out. So I may have to. This may be actually very realistic the way it goes in the studio. Oh, how did you describe yourself? Poet, writer. So have, That's such a broad are, question. I know. <laughs> Holy no, no. God. I know, but if I have to do it for this is on being and I'm with. Yeah. Uh, poet, theologian and leader of the Karamila community. Yeah, okay, good. That's pretty, pretty yeah. close to what I had. All right. All right. 
<laughs> curry cooker and enjoyer of whiskey or some other things that I occasionally put in. I forget what you just said. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Give it a go. Okay. No pressure. I'm, Christ, I'm Krista Tippett. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today in Ballycastle in Northern Ireland with the poet, theologian, and leader of the Corrymeela community. How's that? What do we think? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is what happens when I don't write it down. <laughs> this I is give why it a go. Lily is here. I'm Krista Tippett. <laughs> this is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. I'm Krista Tippett. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today in Ballycastle, Northern Ireland, with Padraig Otuama, poet, theologian, and leader of the Corrymeela community. How's that, Lily? Okay. That's one of the ways to say the name. How yeah. would you say your name? Padraig Otuama. Oh, you would? Yeah. All these years I've known you, and I haven't known how to pronounce your name. <laughs> okay. All right, let's do it again. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today in Ballycastle, Northern Ireland, with the poet, theologian, and leader of the Corrymeela community, Padraig... Say it again. <laughs> Padraig Otuama. Otu Padraig Otuma. Otuma. With Padraig Otuma. With Padraig Otuma, poet, theologian, and leader of the Corrymeela community. Chris will be able to make that work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, there's so much here. Um, just give me a minute. I, I think I want you to talk about the question you get asked about why you are Christian or why you stay Christian, which is, I think, what's implied behind that question. The, the way you draw a distinction, if not um, necessarily an opposition, between the gospel and being Christian. How, how do you answer that question? I think, if I'm understanding what you're asking, uh, the gospels are the way within which the story about what it means to follow Jesus of Nazareth became embodied in the initial telling of that story. And that story evolves in that way. And I think to be a Christian is to try to know these narratives. I think the arrangement of the New Testament sometimes is problematic because you've got the Gospels and then it looks like just commentary on the Gospels. The important bits follow it. And even in terms of the history, those, the Gospels were among the later part of the literature of what we call the New Testament. And so in a certain sense, what began as Paul reflecting on the little enough that Paul seems to know about this character, Jesus of Nazareth, that evolved into the kind of stories about anonymous women pushing their way through crowds. Like it moved into that rather than just went, oh, that's not really important. You know, it's not commentable upon. And I think therefore what that does is it calls me to pay attention to the world and that your involvement in the world, if you're trying to be a Christian who's living with the story of the gospel calls us to be alert to the interruptions of the day, to the things that don't go well, mm -hmm. calls us to be alert to what does faithfulness look like now? Who are the people whose names I don't know? How do I understand what's going on? 
and that that therefore calls you to be alert to the story of delight that's happening and difficulty right in front of you and somehow have a conversation between um, the stories of the gospel with that and to recognize that Jesus's curiosity is with us still mm. and that one of the really interesting parts of him is his curiosity in people when he would stop and go what happened there and therefore that calls us to be alert um, to that kind of possibility of unfolding delight and difficulty right in front of us. Mm. There, you, you mentioned at one point that, I, I think you say that you didn't love the book, the Zen, what is it? Zen and the Art of Zen Motorcycle, and the Maintenance. Art of Motorcycle yeah, yeah. Maintenance. But that there's this word. One lovely word. One yeah. word. I've been reading Henry Nouwen and I thought, when I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, I will become as wise as Henry Nouwen. And then I read the book and I was like, I'm bored. <laughs> Uh, partly because I don't understand motorcycles, yeah. so I suppose that was the beginning. I should have paid attention to that. Um, but but this one this one yeah. word mu mu. There's M-U. a Buddhist concept where if you're asking a poor question, uh, if a question is being asked, go are you this or that? That what Robert Persig says is that you can answer according to his telling of uh, the Zen tradition. You can answer with this word mu m u which means unask the question because there's yeah. a better question to be asked. The question that's asking is limiting and you'll get no good answer from anything. Mm-hmm. This, this question fails us, never mind subsequent answers. And I think that's a really delightful way to understand the world. And I think questions about Jesus sometimes that are posed in our public rhetoric about Christianity. What do we do here? What do we do there? Is this right? Is that right? Am I allowed to be gay and Christian, for instance, was the question that plagued me for years. And I um, think that in a certain sense, we're being told by God, perhaps in silence in our prayers, moo. Because there's better <laughs> questions to ask. Yeah. And asking a wiser question might unfold us into asking even more wi- wi- wiser questions. Whereas certain kinds of questions just entrench fear. Yeah, well, also thing. wiser questions will elicit wiser responses. Yes, yeah, you're right. And yeah. so that, that, will, that will lead us together down a different road. Totally, and maybe towards each other and into human encounter and into the mm-hmm. possibility of saying, I will learn something from somebody I used to be a school chaplain in West Belfast and I trained and I did some Ignatian spirituality training and we used to do um, reflections on um, uh, prayer reflections with 11 year old West Belfast, hilarious young people. Uh, And we'd gather around and light a candle and have a prayer bowl and, you know, just create a little bit of um, quiet and then would do an imaginative Ignatian reflection where the young people would take a walk with Jesus. And um, that it was only a year that I had that job. And that year, I, I loved that job because every day I thought, I am going to meet Jesus as curated and narrated by 11-year-olds from <laughs> West Belfast. And they were hilarious, you yeah. know. One young girl said, yeah, Jesus came walking over the water wearing um, a purple tutu and a coconut bra. Like, oh my God, <laughs> that's not the Jesus that I know. But there, and then for, they had to make a drawing for the bishop. And she said, I'm not very good at drawing. I was like, thank God, because I'd like to keep my job. But uh, another young person said, um, at one point, because Jesus would come up to them in this Ignatian imagination and say to them, hello, and he'd say their name, and I'd say the names of all the kids. And one young fellow said, when Jesus said hello to me and he knew my name, I um, said to him, how do I know you are who you say you are? 
which is theologically pristine. Yes, right, of, right. Um, right. Matthew, Mark and Luke were, like, were saying, nice question, boy, because that was the question that they put in their texts yeah. too, I think. Um, and I said, and did he say anything back? And he goes, yeah, yeah. He looked at me and he told me the story of my life. And I was going, gosh, it's a lovely experience. And he went, yeah, can I colour? <laughs> and uh, and I, I was kind of going, this for me, this is the kind of thing you could live a life from, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. And there he was, 11, going, yeah, that's nice. Like, where's the markers in the paper? Because mm-hmm. I want to draw a picture. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't burden him mm-hmm. with that, the significance that I was feeling from it. I did right. say to him, you might want to think about that every now and then if you're having trouble sleeping. Uh, and I saw him a few months later and I said, do you ever think about that? And he goes, yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a big deal for him. I've lived from it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was for me. You know, the other, the other kinds of story, and I think these are younger kids in a different setting in which you were teaching, mm. you know, you also got this question, um, Padre, does God love us? Oh, yes. Yes. That way, yeah, that was, yeah. A, I was actually in the same job. So why where, did he create Protestants? Where is he? Yeah, she was hilarious. She was one of my favorites. She was amazing at football and she just said everything that she thought. Mm-hmm. I was wittering on about something and she was clearly bored and she goes, Padraig, answer me a question. I went, okay. And she goes, God loves us, right? I went, okay. She was setting out her premise. Uh, and, <laughs> and then I said, okay, she I'm with you. And then she, yeah, totally. And then she goes, and God made us, right? Okay. I knew that these weren't the really important questions. And then and she goes, answer me this. Why did God make Protestants? I said, you have to tell me a bit more about your question. And she goes, mm. well, they hate us and they hate him. And because I knew she was brilliant at football, I said, um, I know a lot of Protestants that would want you on their football team. And she went, really? Because how, she, in that little half comedic, half frightening incident, is telling a story of an entire society because yes. she has been educated yes. and she is reflecting something. And this was only, this is 2011. So this was 13 years after the Good Friday Agreement had been signed. Mm-hmm. She hadn't been born when the Good Friday Agreement was signed. Mm-hmm. And nonetheless, these are ways in which these stories, and you mentioned sectarianism earlier on, and one of the best definitions of sectarianism comes from a book by Cecilia Clegg and Joe Lichty, and they say sectarianism is belonging gone bad. Belonging gone, gone bad. bad. Uh, and they yeah. in that book you you mention mm, um, the scale of sectarian the scale danger. and yeah. so what is that and the scale the scale for them begins I think it's about fourteen or fifteen points the first part of the scale is going you're different I'm different okay fine and the fifteenth point is you're demonic. And that's the word they use, and all the scales down to that. One of the pieces and, and, that they and, uh, and and the farther down that scale you go, the the more violence, the more danger, yeah. dangerous it, it and becomes. And the more you justify, because if somebody is the devil, well then mm-hmm. you get rid of them. Jim. Mm-hmm. One of the scales in that is, um, in order for me to be right, it's important that I believe that you are wrong, and ways within which that is really alive to mm-hmm. how it is. And I think what you've been saying in terms of recognizing that um, fragile and limited as our process has been here, Northern Ireland has transformed itself. Mm -hmm. And involved in that has been politicians and peacemakers and victims and perpetrators and all these limited words like Mm -hmm. that. People Mm -hmm. who've said, I was caught up in something and have now given extraordinary contributions. So many people of goodwill and courage and protest saying Mm -hmm. we can find a way to live well together. Mm -hmm. And this can be the hope. And that's very hopeful to think of that you have collectively, including people who were, uh, who were violent, sure, who yeah. were, ter- you know, terrorists is one of those words, but yeah. um, 
who actually uh, co- collectively moved from that place on the spectrum of demonizing others yeah. back towards not necessarily agreeing or yeah. loving in terms of feeling jubilant in each yeah. other's presence, but, but making that move. Um, and giving committed guarantees to the other's safety mm. and finding ways within which we can say, this can be a place where our disagreements will happen in a tone that is wiser, in a tone that is safer. Mm. And I think that's a really helpful place to be in. I mean, because the implication that to agree with each other um, is what guarantees safety is immediately um, undermined by every experience of family. <laughs> like, <laughs> family, yes, yes. like, we just know that. And <laughs> friendships, that's what we know. Yeah. Um, agreement has rarely been the mandate for people who love each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe on some things, but actually when you look at some people who are lovers and friends you go actually they might disagree really deeply on Mm -hmm. things but there's Mm -hmm. somehow I like the phrase the argument of being alive or in Irish when you talk about trust there's a beautiful phrase from West Kerry where you say you're the place where I stand on the day when my feet are sore and so physical that beautiful understanding and you can find that with each other even when you think different things about what jurisdiction we are or should be in you can find you are the place where I stand on the day when my feet are sore with each other. And that is soft and kind language, but it is so robust and it is part of the firmament that upholds what it means to be human. That is what we can have with each other. And we are failed by um, headlines that just demonize the other and are lazy. And where I might read a headline about myself and go, I don't recognize myself in the language that's been spoken about there. We're failed by that. Mm-hmm. But we're upheld by something that has the quality of deep virtues, of kindness, of goodness, of curiosity, and the, enjo- the jostle and enjoyment of saying, yeah, we disagree. But that curates something and in a psychological context contains something mm-hmm. that actually is uh, a vessel of deep safety and community. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, I'm going to skip over all of my other brilliant questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I just want to read this, um, the, this on the power of the idea of belonging. It creates and undoes us both. And you also wrote, if spirituality does not speak to this power, then it speaks to little. Mm-hmm. Um. I think what I'd love for you to do is read the very end of your book. Um, and I have it, or you have it? I have you. Okay. And um, let me just look. And then I'm just going to ask you to talk a little bit about prayer, <laughs> how you pray, what it is, um, and how it teaches you about all these things we've been discussing. Um, so it will be starting at... Yeah, neither I nor the poets I love. Sure. I suppose I want to say, I stumbled across your work accidentally. Um, A dear friend who you met yesterday, Glenn Jordan, had, um, he was subscribing to the writer's almanac email from Garrison Keillor. And he was forwarding them to me from time to time when he thought there was a poem I'd like. And I wanted to sign up to get it every day because there were so many he were forwarding to me. He was forwarding to me. And um, in those days when you signed up for that, there was a page that went, you may also be interested in these other newsletters. <laughs> and um, like in Egypt, I read them normally. Now these days I skip over them, right. possibly to the lack of my uh, of discovery. But anyway, and I saw your program and um, the Prairie Home, 
No, they, uh, they, something about cooking, because I love cooking. Oh, a splendid table. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just ticked both of them. Uh, and uh, then a couple of weeks later, I listened to a program and I haven't missed a program since. And I think that was 2004. And I know for so many of us here and so many listeners, uh, the possibility of expressing thanks is a great joy. Because in Irish, when you say thanks, you say, may there be a thousand goodnesses with you. And it's a lovely opportunity for all of us I know here to say that to all the team. May there be a thousand goodnesses with you because Mm -hmm. your work has been uh, sacramental. So, Neither I nor the poets I love found the keys to the kingdom of prayer and we cannot force God to stumble over us where we sit but I know that it's a good idea to sit anyway so every morning I sit, I kneel, waiting making friends with the habit of listening hoping that I'm being listened to there I greet God in my own disorder I say hello to my chaos, my unmade decisions, my unmade bed, my desire and my trouble. I say hello to distraction and privilege. I greet the day and I greet my beloved and bewildering Jesus. I recognize and greet my burdens, my luck, my controlled and uncontrollable story. I greet my untold stories, my unfolding story, my unloved body, my own love, my own body. I greet the things I think will happen, and I say hello to everything I do not know about the day. I greet my own small world, and I hope that I can meet the bigger world that day. I greet my story, and hope that I can forget my story during the day, and hope that I can hear some stories, and greet some surprising stories during the long day ahead. I greet God, and I greet the God who is more God than the God I greet. Hello to you all, I say, as the sun rises above the chimneys of North Belfast. Hello. I don't know if we need a question. I, I, would, I would, though, when I read that, I'll just be really honest and say, oh, here's something I didn't say that's honest that I still, I still want to say to you. It's, it comes clear, becomes so clear in your, in your book, especially, that you're so hard on yourself. Like, oh, really? Right? Well, yeah. and you know, you tell that story about your friend Rory who says, oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, the, here's the one thing I know about you, Padre, you yeah, always yeah. make things more difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was prepared that for him to, you know, I was prepared with great modesty to receive a compliment in right. that situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he undid me. Yeah. <laughs> and you, hmm. you are one of these people, and I, 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 I recognize myself a little bit in you. Um, you, you bring a lot of solace to other people and hope to other people, but mm-hmm. you, you've struggled a lot. Yeah, um, totally. Uh, yeah, and um, and uh, I'm I'm kind of feeling my own need of prayer at, at this point in my life, and not, but you know, out of the habit of a habit that I used to be in, and mm. I was very curious. I I just love those pages. I loved, I love that image of you praying and how you pray, and I just wondered if you would say a little bit more about that. Yeah. I do love praying, um, like prier from French, to ask. And what I love about that word is it doesn't require belief. (laughs) It just requires uh, a recognition of need. And I think the recognition of need is something that brings us to a deep common language about what it means to be human. Mm. Uh, And if you don't, if you're not in a situation where you know need, well, then you're lucky. But you will be. (laughs) They won't last for too long. Need is happening in so many ways, in so many levels. 
in people and in societies and in communities. And so with prayer for me, I um, I like some of the things that I grew up with. Uh, I like the rosary, love the touch of beads in my hand. I love lighting candles. Um, I've got a little collection of all kinds of small icons and gifts that people gave that I've raised into a small jungle of holiness in my house. <laughs> and um, I love the possibility of being there and thinking that this is creating a welcoming space within that. And uh, so some of those practices are important. The rosary, stations of the cross. I love the stations of the cross. I prayed them every day for 10 years and returned to them in particularly difficult times. Uh, I, I find them to be a deep solace. And actually, you see that Jesus of Nazareth died the way he had always lived. And I find a deep hope within the context of that. Mm. Uh, he was reaching out to people, saying things, saying troubling things, as, saying, as well as saying consoling things, all the way up to the end. And I find that to be really uplifting. And I suppose I um, really think that prayer is also not only naming or asking, but just saying hello to what is and trying to be brave, trying to be courageous in that situation and trying to be generous to your own self also to go, you know, here's a day when I feel um, intimidated or here's a day I'm just waiting for the end of it or here's a day when I have huge expectations of delight, you know, because those can also be troubling and Ignatius yes. um, cautions people to have um, active detachment recognising that things that will cause you great distress as well as things that can cause you great delight can be things that distract you from what he calls your principle and foundation, which I, I suppose I ultimately understand as love. Uh, and that that is the principle and foundation of the, the human project, of the human story, of the human encounters, to move toward each other in love and to find a way. Like in Caramilla, we talk about living well together. That that is the vision we have, to live well together. That doesn't mean to agree. That doesn't mean that everything will be perfect. It means to say that in the context of imperfection and difficulty, we can find the capacity and the skill, as well as the generosity and courtesy to live well together. And I think by in the morning times, I say hello to all those things. And then I try to say hello a little bit to what I know won't happen. And maybe the next morning I'll reflect on going, what happened yesterday that I didn't even know that I could say hello to? Mm. And in that sense, prayer becomes a way within which you cultivate curiosity and the sense of wonder so that, you know, I'll be returning back to this and can say hello tomorrow to something that I wouldn't have even known about today. And that's how I understand prayer in that way. Mm. Every now and then Jesus shows up and says something interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Through the gospel. I read the gospels in Irish too, because yeah. there's something about reading the text in Irish. I, I love the richness of the etymology mm -hmm. and certain mm -hmm. phrases that actually it's difficult enough to say in Irish. The way within which, like in, in Ireland, I think we have this understanding of why use five words when you can use 50. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the texts are longer than they would be in Greek yeah. or English. Yeah. But it's a lovely thing to do in that sense mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. because you realize the way in which these translators have found a way to say something that really unfolds something really delightful mm. yeah thank you so much it's a joy thank Krista you. it's a thank joy you. Yeah.